All right, welcome on to Dunktown. We're taking a little bit of a different tack today with Perry Bacon Jr., a senior writer at 538. And what we're going to talk about today is how to consume NBA media. Generally, when certain stories come out, when sources are willing to give things to reporters, there is a motivation for that. And Perry has done a lot of work on that in the political arena. And so I wanted to have him on to talk about just how you should read stories that have unnamed sources and what some of the methods and motivations behind those stories are. And then uh, later on at the end, we're going to get into some of his ideas that he had for boosting minority hiring as well. He wrote a column about that for the NFL, but uh, I thought a lot of his ideas really good and applied to the NBA as well. So we wanted to talk about that. So Perry, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. It's really great to be on with you. I would say, first of all, um, I, you know, I've watched basketball my whole life, but I've learned a lot from hearing you and Danny discuss things. I'm a, I'm a better watcher of basketball than I ever was before as a fan, and so I'm grateful for the podcast. It's been really great, and I'm impressed with what you've done as a journalist as well. I feel like you've become one of the people in the NBA everyone wants to hear from and hear about your views. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that, and uh, I can say similar things about you and your work, uh, in the political arena so a quick caveat before we get started here this is not meant to attack anyone's reporting in particular i think we both really respect reporters and i think we also both really know that unnamed sources are required for the news media to do their job this isn't the oh yet another story with anonymous <laughs> sources this is you know those are totally unreliable why can't you get people on the record like that's not what we're going to be doing here so uh, I think that's uh, important to talk about first. So uh, do you, you feel the same way about unnamed sources that they really are a necessary part of doing business? Absolutely. I mean, particularly because whether you're talking about politics, which is where, you know, I'm a political reporter, which is my field or sports, you have a very small number of people who have the core information and you have a whole lot of news outlets who want it. So their incentive to you, you have to take the information in the way they're going to give it to you. And so I think in this since when I hear people say I can't trust this story it's unnamed sources you're not going to get the story otherwise in a lot of cases yeah absolutely and uh you know usually that's because and you'll even see that in a lot of articles not as much in sports of you know someone who uh is being cited anonymously because they're not authorized to right. speak publicly on the matter they fear retribution or something along those lines so you wrote a story back in 2017 that i found very useful for my own work and maybe a good place to start it is talking about that it was called uh, when to trust a story that use unnamed sources so uh, when you see unnamed sources what are some rules of thumb for evaluating whether those sources can be trusted so just for context i did this story in 2017 for 538 at that point trump had just come into the government and you had a ton of unnamed stories on two issues first you've been you basically had all these advisors who Trump had hired at that point. Early on, Trump hired a team of people who didn't necessarily agree on issues. So you'd have a lot of stories saying Ivanka Trump is mad at so-and-so, and according to unnamed sources, Y and Z. So that was one part. And the second part you had was the early parts of the Robert Mueller probe were happening too. And you had these unnamed sources saying so-and-so person talked to this Russian official or this Russian official. So a lot of our readers were sort of confused by these stories. And so our idea was to say, okay, 
okay. I, you know, I'm a, I've, I've covered Washington for a long time. I worked at the Washington Post, worked at Time Magazine, I worked at MSNBC. And so I sort of know how these stories work. I covered the White House myself. So I wanted to sort of unpack for people, like, how do you trust these stories and how do you know what to trust? So the series actually had two stories in it. One was, how, you know, how can you know where to trust the story with anonymous sources? And the second was kind of a guide to who the sources are. For example, if a story says State Department sources, that gives you a pretty good clue that it's the State Department or the Golden State <laughs> Warriors executives or what have you. Versus the story says senior administration officials. That could be in the Department of Defense, the Secretary of State, the White House, the Interior Department. That gives you sort of a little information. And so that's kind of where we're starting from. So if you want to like, so anyway, so in terms of how do you trust a story, I mean, the first thing is to look for the specificity of sources. Like if, if a story says Magic Johnson is resigning as the GM of the Lakers, according to league sources, that's one thing that might be true or not. If he's resigning according to Lakers officials, that's a totally different, that's much more re- reputable because that means the reporter either called the Lakers PR department or they know that the Lakers PR department will call them and complain if the story is wrong. There's sort of more accountability there when it's like that direct. That seems obvious, but it goes, goes without saying. Sure. Another example would be when you, you know, to trust a story is when a story, when the story um, talks about something that happened. Like, you know, a, you know, there's a either, you know, a lot of a lot of NBA teams have these sort of a team players only meetings when there's tension. So if you if a reporter reports that a players only meeting happened, according to unnamed sources, I tend to trust that more because a meeting happened or it didn't happen. Like LeBron is mad at David Blatt or is like a is a is, a, is probably was was true as it turned out. But that was sort of more speculation. We can, we can decide who's mad at who, if their tensions are high or not. A meeting happened or it didn't happen. Um, um, often things that have more sources or more potential sources are more re- reputable. For example, like if there's if we're talking about tension on a team, you, there actually is. It's not just like if you read a story that says LeBron has tensions with David Blatt, the reporter didn't have to call necessarily talk to LeBron or David Blatt. Like if you look at think about most basketball teams, you have twelve players. You have t- each one of them has an agent they talk to regularly. So there's twenty four people. There's probably one head coach and four or five assistants. So that's thirty people. There's the front office. So there are 20 people. So you get like this 50 person potential. Um, so when like Ethan Strauss was writing last year, I mean, when Duran was at the, at the, on the Warriors, when he was writing about the idea that it was, it was sort of a fait accompli on the Warriors team that um, Durant was leaving, that didn't surprise me that was true because that, that universe people who would know that is very, very large. On the other hand, Durant may be signing with the Nets. That was a hard story to, to, to trust early on because the people who know that is probably a three or four person universe. Durant, Durant's girlfriend, if he has one, I don't remember, um, and maybe his agent. And that's probably it. Yeah, that's a, a great way and uh, of looking at it. And I, I think the other thing that I could add to that, too, is you, you mentioned, OK, a team meeting happened. I think that can be a lot more reliable than, uh, you know, this guy doesn't like this guy or there are tensions or something or someone plans to do something. These guys don't get along because that's something where, yes, someone might be in a position to know enough that like, you know, to have seen like one blow up between these people, but maybe they don't know that those people made up afterwards or something like that you know or they're they're not really in those people's heads and so i think you know a lot of times when players complain about unnamed sources it'll be stories like that where they're uh extrapolating a state of mind for the person that maybe doesn't exist now of course in 
Strauss, the case of Strauss's story, he was he was completely he was correct. Right, so, yeah. uh, but I, I think that's one where players would be like, no, I don't think that, or or something uh, along those lines. So that's that's one that kind of stands out to me. Of yeah, I, again, when it's something that specifically, if it's okay, you know, Draymond Green and Steve Kerr got into an argument about this, it, it happened, right? Or did yeah, happen, right? as opposed to Draymond Green and Steve Kerr hate each other. You know, that's and then the other thing that pops out to me as a former lawyer is, you know, there are rules of evidence in when you're in a courtroom. And so, you know, I think some reporters, especially in the sporting arena, especially less experienced reporters, they'll sometimes just take it as gospel from someone who isn't really in a position to know. And they don't probe enough to be like, okay, how do you really know that that's true? I think that's one of the criticisms that I would have in general of NBA reporting. And I would say that about political reporting, too, is like, I mean, in the, you know, the way I've learned journalism is the best thing to have is a document. Uh, and the same for law probably yeah. too is like if you have a document that we don't we don't, we're, not, we're not guessing anymore and if we're relying on people talking to us the more sources the better obviously and then if you have an account that you want someone to be very close to the account like if Steve Kerr is telling the reporter that this the reporter may not necessarily say that was his source but hopefully he told his or her editor that and they know that and so the other thing is obvious too is to think about the publication itself like um, or the reporter itself like ESPN has been covering has been covering sports for a long time. They're very reputable, isn't it? They're very um, reliable in general. They're almost they're, they're very reliable. They have a lot of reporters covering covering sports. They don't want to get sued. Um, they want to maintain their reputation. It's sort of like the New York Times or the AP or CNN in my sphere. Also, you have reporters like Woj breaks a ton of stories. He gets things right. Players trust him. So I when, I, when a story is from when I read a story that it's like I'm not even an NBA you know writer but or but I, when i read a story from Woj, i tend to assume particularly if he says so-and-so player is signing x i'm pretty sure that's going to be true i yeah. say the same thing for like adam schefter in the nfl like those people every athlete those people are like bigger than some of the players on some level so i definitely trust them versus if it's an anonymous reporter who i've never heard of or an outlet i've never heard of i mean yahoo has some great sports reporters i would i would say that about them too particularly and si has had historically had some uh, Zach Lowe is obviously rep- very um, solid at ESPN as well. But yeah, if you get a story from Woj, you should probably trust it. Yeah, that that makes sense. So anything else, you, uh, rules of thumb that you had mentioned for how to evaluate stories with the anonymous sources? I can't think of those are kind of the main sort of obvious Yeah, did, did we hit all five of them there? Yeah, I think we um, did there, yeah. Yeah, so what do you see, uh, you wrote the that series with respect to politics what are some of the similarities and differences you see when comparing sports reporting based on access and anonymous sources to political reporting based on access and anonymous sources so the difference and i would say and i was alluding to this a little earlier between politics and sports is that if you're oh if you're the white house you're the obama campaign you're the biden campaign and you want to leak a story it's not clear to me necessarily it's always best to go it's not clear to me there's one sort of prime outlet or one prime reporter like i think people consider like the new york times the biggest you know the most prestigious news agency in america but for but if but more people probably read news from the associated press or like cnn.com than the new york times even so it's not so you might have different incentives to leak a story to different people um for the cnn abc news cbs news the new york times the washington post politico might be the best for some stories versus i would argue in sports there is 
is probably the NBA and the NFL. I would argue the one big game in town is ESPN, and the in the game and the big reporters are Adam uh, for the NFL and Woj for the NBA. So in some ways that is different. Like in some ways that gives Woj and Adam particularly a little bit more power to kind of get most of the scoops, and it gives the sources a little less power to determine what's going on. Um, so that's a big difference. The similarities are is that there's a lot of reporters who want the same stories, there's a lot, and they and they all and there's still a fairly limited who have the information. And at the end of the day, the stories are still really still hard to run down. Um, and at the end of the day, these stories are very well coveted because these kind of scoops like will make. I'm not sure if readers know who got a scoop on a story and who didn't, or listeners, but I know that editors and people who hire journalists do, and so that matters a lot for reporters. And I think Woj is doing well financially, is my guess, because he had a <laughs> reputation for that at Yahoo and then brought it to ESPN. Yeah, I think. Do you see a difference between the whole the value of news breaking? I mean, here in the NBA, it's a Woj. It's Shams, you know, are Shams. the two biggest newsbreaker. There is value, which I, I've kind of railed against before, but, you know, I, I don't determine what the market is. Clearly, there is value in being the one to be five seconds sooner on Twitter reporting a signing or a transaction than the next guy. Is there that same sort of thing in politics? And do you think that, that the primacy of being the first one to break something thing on Twitter affects the tenor of NBA reporting? That's an interesting question. So in politics, yeah, I think like I would name her, there's a reporter named Maggie Hayward who works for the New York Times. She breaks a lot of the stories about the Trump White House. I think she has a lot of Twitter followers. She has a, She's on CNN a lot. People value that. I mean, that's something people, um, that's just something readers want to know. Like even if, even if we say learnings to scoop 10 minutes for the next reporter did, it may seem not that silly, but that's where people are, people want want to consume news quickly and they like it a lot. I should say one big difference between like what we do and what in politics and what happens in sports is uh, the stakes are much more serious, obviously, like on some level, like Trump is deciding, you know, who gets to stay in the country, who doesn't, how we handle the coronavirus, how, how we don't, or in this case, poorly. So it's not as the, the decisions themselves, the stakes are much higher in politics and much more serious. So I would say versus Woj, you know, who, where LeBron signs is important, but not, you know, life changing for anybody besides LeBron ultimately. So, um, but I think this, this, this question you've raised about like, is there value in getting these scoops earlier? I, I think it depends on what the scoop is. And some scoops we should note would never come out unless the reporter did the work. Like there's some like, you know, the ultimate story being sort of like Watergate being, it's not just that somebody broke that first, they required a lot of breaking to get the story, period. So that's kind of the hallmark of like anonymous sources doing real journalism. I, think, I mean, you can think of like maybe the Dallas Mavericks had a sexual harassment, something on their team. That was a story that kind of came out, I think, from reporting that maybe would not have come out otherwise versus whether Bill Belichick and Tom Brady don't like each other and how that story came out from Seth, um, Seth Wasser. There's a guy named Seth. Who Wickersham, right? Seth Wickersham. I forgot that. Yes. That story was interesting, but ultimately not that important. Maybe it was because yeah. it did sort of preview that Brady would lead the team. But it wasn't that important. Um, so in terms of like, do we va- so I, so I value scoops to some extent. I do worry that occasionally everyone's in a rush to be first because it's a, it's a sort of a prestige game, and you yeah. sort of get these kind of. 
I remember when uh, Trump, early in Trump's first year, there were, like it was clear that um, Reince Priebus, who was Trump's first chief of staff, it was clear he was on the ropes because Trump didn't like him and thought he was ineffective. So you had this continuous stream of stories this year where it was like, Priebus may be fired, Priebus likely to be fired, Priebus and reporters trying to be first. And I don't know how many value, like it was clear to me as a reader, okay, Reince is in trouble, get it. I didn't need to have 15 stories on that. And I do worry that the LeBron and Durant their final seasons with their with the Cavs and with the Warriors. There was so much speculation that as a reader, as a as a as a reader and a consumer of sports news, I sort of knew. Okay, LeBron is likely to lead the Cavs this next year to, to go somewhere. Uh, Duran is leaving. I don't need to read nine hundred stories speculating on exactly which <laughs> team where. We get it. And that's, that's kind of where I find. And I'd rather read because I think one thing your podcast values value is for me at least is that. I actually, I find that NBA coverage has gotten so consumed at times by who's going where that there's less coverage of what happened in the game. And I I think the balance is sometimes off between the reporters who have some incentive to break news. And I know there's an audience for for the NBA drama too, but I actually want to know, like at some point during the NBA finals, I felt like even between Toronto and Golden State, there was so much coverage still about whether Durant would leave. And it was like, in six weeks, we will know the answer to this question. So can we just can we talk about the games already? Which I think are actually what I watch basketball for. That was a long yeah. rant. I apologize. I, no, no. I, I mean, I think that that's a, a common refrain to be sure. And I think part of that too is the mundanity of an 82 game yes. regular season where there are so many games that you really just can't keep up with all of them. And so it's like the NFL. I mean, yeah, there's stuff on the transaction game and the drama too, but with only one game a week, people spend, you know, a bunch of time every week breaking down the game and you have all this time to kind of digest it. Whereas in the NBA, yeah, that might, it's hard to say, oh man, that was a huge game that mattered so much. And oh, by the way, they're playing uh, three more games over the next five days. <laughs> Uh, so it, you, there's more of a focus on that. And also, I, I mean, there is just, I think generally among a lot of sports fans, it's just, you know, uh, I'm sure men uh, will, uh, deride, uh, women for like oh yeah you guys watch soap operas right like this is you know how can you care about that it's like no actually uh a, a lot of men are really just interested in soap opera stuff too it's just you getting it in your sports and you want to know whether kd and russ are texting each other again after uh durant went to the warriors uh, for example and not to stereotype i know there are some men who like soap operas and uh, plenty of women who like sports uh, as well but uh i mean i, I think that's just for, for men who are like oh yeah you know you're just all into the drums like no actually uh you're into that too in sports and that it shows by some of the reporting that gets emphasized here in um, fact you asked about similarities like yeah. as a person who covered the white house and covered congress one thing i enjoy about sports reporting in this drama sense in this gossip is that it's very similar like in some ways at the white house there's one guy who's in charge and who who, who has a lot of power but he has a lot of staff who really do the most of the real work and i say this not just for trump i'm not trying to bash trump here Obama, Bush, whoever's the president, the staff does a lot of the work, doesn't get a lot of credit, and sometimes they think that person or their number two is stupid or sucks, and so are not doing a good job. And in a similar way, if you're on the Golden State Warriors, Steve Kerr, 
uh, the owners, Durant, Curry, have a lot of power and a lot of pull, and you can't criticize them directly in the media because that's not going to be good for you. But you might feel like they suck sometimes, and so I so that's kind of worthy. So there is a drama and a tension there in the same way in politics. Like if you're a Democrat in the House and you think Pelosi's doing a poor job, you kind of want to get that message out because you might think telling that in public will push her in a better direction. It also might be you think you do a better job than her, but she's got the power. And the same way, when I read stories bashing the coach of a team anonymously, I tend to trust those in part because my guess is a lot of the players are pretty smart at basketball and think, you know, wow, if we had a slightly better coach, we could be, you know, doing much better. And often I think the players are probably right about that, but there's not a great vehicle to say that on the record because if you're at a big scrum in the NBA and you say our coach blew X and Y play, it becomes, you know, it becomes a big drama for the player. It's really hard for the player. Most players can't sustain that, but they probably want to get the message out that the coach is not very good. So another thing I wanted to ask you about is kind of how the sausage is made, right? Like, let's say reporters are is the first one to break news that a player is signing somewhere or the first one to break news of a trade. How, how are they getting this information and why are the sources giving them this information at all as and to them as opposed to some other reporter? So... It's, it's, it's complicated because in the NFL, there's a very clear incentive, which is that the contracts are somewhat complicated and they're in the these non-guarantees and that kind of stuff. And there's some in the NBA this too. So one reason you want to give, if you're the agent, who I think is often the source for these things. So if you're the agent and you give Adam Schefter the scoop about my player signing with X team, you want, I mean, Adam's a great reporter, but, Ad, but Adam may not have have read the contract in detail. He probably hasn't got to see it yet. So you can get the number to say five years at $30 million, when in reality, the guaranteed number is two years and $12 million. So it makes you as the agent look better, makes the player look better, and so on. NBA contracts tend not to be exactly that way. They tend to be more um, more prescribed. So the, so yeah, the, so you, the, you will see that, by the way, in some. the NBA, for sure, where, you know, if there are incentives or non-guarantees or, uh, you know, this guy got a, a quote-unquote max contract when it was just the maximum uh, extension he could have gotten at that time, but it's actually like $15 million a year less than the actual max contract, like that that sort of stuff. So my sense is in the NBA, and I don't. this is like something I know less, is that um, on some level, like I think Woj gets a lot. Woj is kind of an information broker of sorts, is my impression, and that I think people might give him scoops in parkas. I think he might know, something, know more about some teams than people who work for the team do. So I think... <laughs> that there's some amount of like information like in politics at least one of the things that i found in my career was sources were more helpful to me to give me stuff if i knew stuff too and so if i could provide them you know i heard so and so at the white house is mad at this and you said this and if it like you know sources want to reporters often know a lot of stuff and know stuff the source doesn't know and so if you can be in that kind of exchange and that's my sense with Woj is he's a broker of information on every side and people give him stuff also at this point in the nba like putting out a press release about something or telling Woj is like the same thing. Woj is like where all the news of the NBA happens on some <laughs> level. I mean, unless you're like a LeBron or like a Durant and you want to have your Instagram post to say, I'm signing here because you're trying to build your own brand. Mo- that's a few players. And most players are just trying to announce I got signed. And Woj, telling Woj is like telling ESPN.com or like or like telling the world on some level because Woj has this huge following and everybody who follows the NBA follows him. 
Um, how much horse trading do you think there is in these the news breaking where, it, you know, in exchange for either access or news breaking, uh, I will, you know, maybe I'm not going to put out a story that's favorable to you, but you know, maybe I will have you, uh, your client on my podcast or something, something like that. Do you think either maybe not explicit, but at least implicit are, are those sorts of, uh, for best, uh, lack of a better word, transactions going on? You know, cause I'm in politics and that would not be well received if people heard you held this story back on Obama or Trump for this reason. So I don't know yeah. if that happens in sports or not, cause I'm not a sports supporter. What I would say is the kind of thing I worried about when I, particularly I was, I was on MSNBC for a while and um, as a television television analyst, and, what, and if I and if I would, if, and sometimes you know when you're writing, you can control your words a little more. So sometimes I, I remember I, I would make a flip flip comment criticizing Obama or somebody at the White House, and I, and people would watch, and they'd often be like, I cannot believe you said this. And so that kind of thing itself kind of reins you in a little bit, um, in the sense that you want to preserve those relationships, and you don't want necessarily like to hold back your opinion or your take or like hold back bad news, but you might want to frame it in a way that's going to keep doors open as opposed to closing doors. I don't know if you watch, I'm sure, I'm sure people who are listening to this watch the, um, the last dance documentary, for example. Of course. And yeah. so that brought me back to, I don't know if you remember, but um, when I was in Washington, um, I was there in Washington for the last couple seasons with Michael Jordan was playing for the Wizards. This was not no, a we, great we don't, time. We don't talk about that. That that I, as as a Jordan fan, someone who grew up in Chicago in the nineties, that that never happened. Right, exactly. So <laughs> so the Washington Post had Michael Wilbon. He worked there. Michael Wilbon, as you saw in the documentary, he was he was he's someone who's close to Michael. He spent some time with Michael. He covered Michael. So the Washington Post. So he was covering Jordan, but also the Washington Post assigned this guy named Michael Leahy who. Who, um, to, who was the Jordan reporter for two years. For whatever reason, Jordan gave Michael Leahy no access to him and so on. And this decision, I would argue, was a mistake because Leahy, having no access to Michael Jordan, had no incentive to think, to write nicely about Michael Jordan at all. And his coverage of him was actually quite scathing um, of him in a way that I had not really read before. And I think it goes to the fact, I'm not saying Wilbon was pulling punches. I'm just saying that when you have relationships with people uh, on the source side, you have some incentive to make sure you don't, you're not like, you're not really, you're not overly critical of them versus Leahy really laid it out how much worse Jordan was as a player than he was in, in his Bulls era. And he also laid out how much Rip Hamilton and the other players really hated Michael. And there's a book out, I think there's a book Leahy wrote called When Nothing Else Matters it's about Michael's last two years um, with the, uh, two years of the Wizards. And it really is a, a, a much more negative portrayal than you'll read about Michael. And some of that is true but I think it's also also had in it the sort of source elements that if you have no access to the source, there's no reason to sort of to sort of cater the source at all. Yeah, that's a, an interesting way of looking at it, and maybe good uh, advice for uh, teams and players <laughs> and agents to you know not leave certain people completely out in the cold because you know, that's uh that's what can result is if you're only talking to uh people who are uh i guess for lack of a better word enemies uh, of whoever that source is um yeah you know i think uh one of the things that uh, stood out to me and i don't know if this happens at all in political reporting is i think you know there are some reporters not not all of them uh one one in particular that that i 
can think of where there does seem to be like a little bit of a carrot and a stick where it's like all right if you're on the team uh you know i can at least kind of help you manage some things a, a little bit if you have a negative story let it come out you know you give it to me i'll at least you know try to be fair to you or yes. let it come out in the way that you want to come out or you know you can come on my podcast and i'll uh ask you questions like uh you're a, a state's witness and i'm the uh, i'm giving you a direct examination uh you know we're like where we're on the team i can kind of lead you into saying things that, that are gonna be positive or uh you might be if you're not on the team you know you might uh, generally uh this reporter is not uh is you know tries to play it pretty close to the vest or you know is skews towards a little bit complimentary but every once in a while you'll see him just completely destroy people and you can tell that those are the people who aren't on the team as far as like giving him access uh, and news breaking is is that something that you've noticed at all do you agree with me that that happens and also you know is that something that you'll see uh, in politics as well so in the politics example the first thing you maybe think of is occasionally you'll read a negative story about a politician like you know like elizabeth warren or kamala harris or obama whoever and occasionally you might think oh that came from the republicans if it's a democrat or there came from the democrats as a republican but in reality like if you're gonna like like if you're kamala harris or elizabeth warren you might be vice president the vice president i mean in a few weeks you want to get negative stories out about yourself right now so what you might do is go to reporters who are somewhat who are going to give you a fair shake and say are you are you know well you have some relationship with you might say hey here's this negative thing that i did that's going to be terrible that's kind of terrible for me i want you to write the story because and they're not going to say because you're nice to me but the implication is obvious that maybe since i'm presenting i'm giving you a scoop it's negative that maybe it'll come out a little more favorably for me than if a reporter dug it up on their own so that happens a lot in politics where you sort of do oppo research on yourself and give it to reporters that you might like now I don't know as much about politics in this sort of like direct kind of like I'm mean to you because you give me no access and so on. That tends to happen a little less, I would say, in politics because at the end of the day, you know, we're trying. Is the stakes are a little higher? Like you, you can't necessarily say Kamala Harris is terrible or she's great because you have access to her or not. Versus the NBA, I can, I can when I read stories, I sort of know some reporters are more favorable to the people and some are not. But I would say, you know, and I'm going to name a reporter specifically here, but like. I read Brian Windhorse. He covers, he's covered LeBron for years. I think he knows stuff about LeBron and is thoughtful about LeBron and will be critical of LeBron at times. But do I expect Brian, who I think has, you know, has that relationship with him and with him and LeBron and LeBron's team, I think is important to Brian's career, is, is important to the journalism Brian does. I don't expect him to be like super scathing about LeBron the way that other people are. And I kind of read the stories knowing that I'm not, I think Brian's very honest, straightforward, but I sort of read the stories knowing that. So I do think there's a little bit of a, there's sort of obvious things going on here. Like I don't expect a lot of reporters to kind of trash Steph Curry because Steph Curry seems like a nice guy. And so I think those things are going on as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, and I guess it's also different too, because in politics, there's always an enemy. There's news media associated with the left or the right, right. in a way where you know, you're always going to have people who are unfavorably disposed to you. Whereas 
in the NBA. Maybe that's not so much the case. Um, another thing I think that is interesting to talk about is in these NBA stories, like who is the audience? Like what, what, what is the point of leaking certain stuff? Who are you really trying to manipulate? I, I mean, I think there's a number of potential audiences in sports reporting where maybe there isn't so much in politics In politics. It's just, all right, I, I want to ultimately either make myself look good. So I'm going to get more votes at the end of the day or just get what i want within my organization and you know get this person who's uh stopping my agenda out of there or their influence diminished i I think sports there's there seems like more varied motivations in why you might be leading something do you agree with that so there's a lot in politics too so if you're leaking something to the new york times like you work at the white house and you are mad advisor x is doing advisor is doing x or y you disagree with so you're 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 Steve. You're someone at the White House who wants Trump to be more moderate, and and he's not doing that. You might want to leak that because you might want Trump reads the New York Times, so you might might want to influence Trump. You might be trying to influence the audience of the New York Times to, to, for them to think, oh, oh, so and so is a good guy. He doesn't like. He doesn't agree with what Trump is doing. So on. So you might <laughs> want to do that. You also might want to leak your advice to the New York Times so that like other Republicans read this advice and they're like, oh, Trump should be doing that. And then they they go to Trump. Like maybe Mitch McConnell reads what, you, reads what your advice was. And in some meeting with, Mitch, with, with Trump, Mitch McConnell is like, hey, you know, Mr. President, I heard that you're considering X idea. Why don't you do it already? So there's a lot of motivations there too. When I read an NBA story, what I'm usually reading for with anonymous sources, often it's about an individual team. So my, my view is like the three parts of the team. There's the coaches, there's the players, and there's the management. Um, and they're often trying to, trying to blame one another when the team is losing and like the, and also, and and so, and that's for the fans. So you, so often you can see the anonymous sources where when, when the, when you're reading stories where the coach sucks or does something wrong, according to anonymous sources, usually it's probably the players or the management because they're trying to blame the coach instead of them. So you have a lot of incentives to do that. So the audience is is the fans, first of all, because the fans are trying to figure out who to blame. The, the audience is also kind of like whoever the big sports re, sorts media person in that town is or the, or ESPN, because ultimately most people don't really know enough about basketball to know whose fault is the team is losing. So if you're having these anonymous sources debated, ultimately, you know, the Bill Simmons or the Stephen A. Smiths of the world, they're going to shape opinions a lot. And that matters, too. And the third audience, I would say, is often the owner. So in some ways, the oh, owner yeah. is going to figure out who to fire between the players, the managers and the coaches. And and the stories, I'm not, and I think they're all sort of competing. The owners also don't really know a lot about basketball, is my impression. And so these sort of <laughs> anonymous sources and the fighting sort of shapes how the owner decides what to do. So, like, I guess it's so, so an example. Um, there was a, I guess Kenny Atkinson, I think is his name, was the coach of the New yeah. Jersey Nets, and so he left the team in the in the spring, and so. Um, I read some so the so I so one of the um, the higher ups there said, of course it has nothing to do with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. They really like Atkinson. So I read some <laughs> other stories suggesting anonymous sources say there's tension. I obviously trust the anonymous sources in this case for the obvious reason that 
Atkinson, Durant, and Kyrie have no incentive to publicly ban. Sorry, the 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 GM of the Nets, whose name I can't remember, has Sean Marks. Yeah, has very little incentive to bash Durant or Kyrie directly because they're still on the team, and the owner doesn't want that either. But if Durant and Kyrie want a coach to be on a team, he'll still be coaching the team. It's not that complicated. So that's the kind of thing <laughs> where I think it's sort of obvious, like what the motivations are. And one thing I wanted to add in about the NBA that I think is sort of unique and unlike um, politics, particularly with, with Trump as president, is you have these dynamics where the the press corps is mostly white, I would say, still at this point for the NBA. The management is mostly white. The owners are mostly white, but the players are mostly black. And so I think that plays out in a couple different ways. One is which that I think that the writers are often, and I'm sort of stereotyping grossly here, but I think the writers in a lot of cases tend to identify more with the management and the coaches because they're white men who are not particularly great at sports and not particularly tall and so on. So they have more in common, like most most um, po- most um, writers for um in the NBA, would have, a, would have an easier time becoming an assistant coach or an assistant GM or a scout than becoming LeBron James because they're not very tall and good <laughs> at basketball. And so I think that t- – so you can tell often the players don't like these anonymous sources stories. And I think it's like they're saying – this is I can't tell where the story is coming from. I don't know who this is, where the story where the story is. But I think it's really rooted – I don't want to say everything's about race, but I think it's really rooted in that the players feel like maybe they don't the, – the, the players feel like they are not really represented in the media at times. Times and not and the media doesn't really understand their perspective very well and I think there's something worth exploring and thinking about there yeah I think so and I think there's also frankly from both uh surveys that I've seen and just uh, my own life talking to people I think that white fans generally tend to be a little bit more pro-management black fans tend to be more pro-player for example white fans were really mad at LeBron and the decision and were like I'm never going to be a fan of LeBron again when he went to Miami uh whereas black fans really you know didn't care as much about that so that is an interesting dynamic and I think you'd see uh that the reporting can follow those sorts of uh you know, where you're playing to a certain type of audience with a, a certain type of uh, feeler expectations, particularly white reporters who are more management focused. You kind of have these more reactionary reporters in some respects uh, who are really, uh, you know, just taking management side. Same thing if there's some kind of a labor dispute or something like that. So I, I think that that is definitely a dynamic that exists in NBA reporting. Although I would sure. say all this is changing. I mean, so I do a lot of, uh, I do a lot of, um, writing about public opinion and opinion about racial attitudes and things like that. So I do think that we're seeing the culture is changing on racial issues and has been for a long time. And I do think like 20 years ago, like it was considered like a lot of people thought when a player, those NBA players, they're they're so ungrateful. They're so entitled. The word thug would be used to describe them at times. And I think the culture is changing where I think 20 years ago, 30 years ago, LeBron James would have been described as kind of a malcontent. He's changed teams three times. And now I think a lot of people, white, black, whatever their 
embraces, really younger people view LeBron James as kind of a person who set his own path for his own career. He's like a, for me as, as a political reporter, I think of him as a political figure as well, where on some level he's figured out how to have more power and control on these teams than the coaches, the management, at times even the owner. He's a very unique person in that. And I think that's because he's very strategic, A, first of all, most important. But I also think, B, that the culture around sports and coverage has changed where people now acknowledge that, hey, maybe LeBron was right to lead the team. Maybe their coaching staff wasn't up to it. <laughs> maybe, we should, maybe we should think about what he's actually saying. Because well, to me, it's like, and I read a story, and I'm trying to remember who wrote it as a sports writer. LeBron James is a genius in basketball, the same way like Malcolm Gladwell is in writing, or maybe a Barack Obama is in politics. Like LeBron James, if you listen to him talk about basketball, sees things other people don't see before that he is a genius in his own sport. And I think it's being recognized that he actually has very high intelligence in that sphere. Yeah, that's a, a great point to, to make. And uh, last thing I want to talk about on this topic uh, before we transition to talking a little bit about minority hiring is if you see a story that says a source close to player X uh, you know, uh, says that X is going to happen or the player thinks this. What do you think when you see a story like that? I almost always assume it's the player's agent and therefore I assume, or it might even be the player himself or his manager. So I assume those stories are true. So if a story says sources close to LeBron, I assume that means, because the, the reporter is therefore taking on some amount of accountability, because if you read a story saying sources close to LeBron, everyone in the world is going to read that and ask LeBron what he said, and people know who the sources close to LeBron are. I think one of them is on a television show at this point. So it's not like hard to know who those people are, and so if those people deny the story on the record, that makes you look bad. So if you're going to use actually, versus if you say league sources say LeBron is going to do X, well that could be, that covers like a thousand people, or more than that probably, I would assume. So that doesn't tell you anything, but sources close to, if sources close to Steve Kerr say he's going to stop being the coach of the Warriors, I tend to assume they talk to Steve Kerr, Steve Kerr's agent, Steve Kerr's wife, Steve Kerr, you know, maybe Mike Brown, you know, somebody who knows the information. So that's pretty reputable. So I tend to assume those things are true because if you do enough stories and you say sources close to X say Y will happen and you're wrong, people will stop trusting you pretty quickly. Yeah, and I guess it's, the ones that are the most interesting to me is when it's sources close to this person said something and then that person actually denies it. Like that'll happen every once yeah, in a while. Absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, I, I wonder, and you know, I think general, I can't think of any instances where that was said and then it just turned out to not be true. Or it, I mean, I guess the other thing you can talk about too, is just in a, uh, any kind of a claim with anonymous sources, how verifiable is the claim that's being made? If it's, Oh, this person doesn't like this person. Well, okay. You can never, really actually verify that it's not making a prediction about something that's going to happen it's not something that did happen uh or you know another one that i love is uh okay the uh the this team is planning to do this or this is a major consideration in their plans or team has discussed doing x y and z uh and so those stories like if it's okay they are going to do this all right, that's a lot different. You're now if it doesn't happen, you're on there, you know, you could you can go down on that slippery slope to having more and more plausible deniability about, oh yeah, they just talked about it. that doesn't mean uh that 
it was actually going to happen. It's like, well, okay, then why did you even give us the story? So I guess you're right. right. The incentive. Okay, so let's say I, I guess Chris Chris Paul and James Harden sound like they had some tension at the end. So I guess yeah. the incentive for both those people, if they're asked, is to lie about it and say there was no tension. So if you're the reporter and you write a story about that, and and people come to the sources, you say sources close to Chris Paul say he doesn't like this about James Harden. You probably got it from his agent or somebody he knows, but they say then that is not true. I guess you are in a hard spot then because you have a hard time proving tensions. And so ultimately what happens is the trade on some level proves the point. Um, so it's like, that's the evidence. Like a lot of Ethan's reporting about the Warriors turns out to be true. So that's kind of the evidence for it. But I do think that's a hard place. And I know in my own reporting in politics, I tend to try to avoid things where if I say there's tensions between X and Y person, and they can't afford that to happen in public, then I know that I'm going to get criticized and they're going to say I exaggerated it or something. And this has happened to me before where it's, I sort of said so-and-so and so-and-so have tension. I think Nancy Pelosi and Rahm Emanuel, I think was what I wrote about. And their staffs both denied it. And I guess you're, you're in a place then where readers have to trust you. Have you built some trust or not? And sometimes yeah. you have and sometimes you haven't. Yeah, it's interesting. As a reporter, you you know what kind of story is going to lead to an auto denial. Yes. And so if that's going to happen, you got to be like really, really solid, solid on it, I guess, exactly. right? Yes. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about minority hiring. I, I had, it, it, for people who are interested in this topic, I had Mark Spears on to talk about it last week from an NBA perspective. But you, you know, you're kind of coming from a little bit more of an outsider's perspective, which I think could be valuable. I think it's very easy to get myopic on this issue in particular because there's been so much ink spilled about this already and the NBA is doing better than I think pretty much any other industry, but still uh, struggling. And then other sports uh, are doing far worse in terms of minority hiring. So maybe it is time for some outside perspectives on, on way to improve things. So when you wrote about this uh, back in January with respect to the NFL or some of the ideas you had that you maybe you haven't seen elsewhere necessarily. So what we did was we sort of looked at, so generally like when I think about diversity, I, I, I'm black. I think I said this a couple of times in the, in the, or implied this, but I, so I tend to think about diversity in terms of this way of like, there's very few fields in the world where there's not people qualified who are black or women or, you know, or, or Asian or Latino or whatever. So I tend to sort of start from that assumption like i guess if, if we're trying to get nba players who are more who are six seven or above there aren't a lot of women who are six seven or above i can see that's a limit but um but otherwise i tend to assume the qualification that a lot of people are qualified for jobs like there are 30 nba coaching jobs but there are probably 500 people who could coach an nba team semi-competently is my view of this i'm sure listeners may disagree with that so that said so what i was trying to figure out was like looking because we did this story we did story 530 after the nfl had hired you know there's a big country the nfl in January, where there were all these, or there were all these hiring hiring of coaches, and they were all white, and trying to look at what happened. So what I tried to do, and with my colleague Neil Payne, was to sort of look at the hiring patterns that go on in the NFL and try to figure that out. And the sort of obvious thing was to look at like what is the path to become a coach. And it looks like what happens is in your 20s, you're a a low level coach on a college team. Then in your upper 20s, you go to become like the the this, the job called like the um, quality control coach on a team <laughs> sounds, and sounds John like Gruden most. was this job it's like a vague made up job you know John <laughs> Gruden had this job very early on then you become 
a position coach, then you become a coordinator, then you become like a head coach. So this is not shocking. The NBA probably has a similar pathway. And what you find is the offensive, the NFL has very few black head coaches. It also has very few black offensive, it also has very few black offensive coordinators and very few black offensive, very few black defensive coordinators. In particular, offensive coordinator is where about half the jobs come from. And, um, and I think there were maybe three black offensive coordinators in the 30 teams in the NFL in uh, last year. So that's kind of the, that's the, that's a big gap is like until the, if you're going to hire that way based on who's an office coordinator, then the pool is overwhelmingly white and the results will be overwhelmingly white. So that's like not shocking. So what we, what we went through and laid out was essentially how do you diversify all these spots along the coaching rungs? And what you, what I found, for example, was um, so Sean McVay is the coach of the of the Los Angeles Rams. He got hired in his 30s. He got one of these offensive quality control jobs when he was like 24 or something, and one, and he got that job on a team coached by John Gruden. John Gruden had worked as an assistant for Sean McVay's grandfather or father. I've forgotten which one. One of his parents. <laughs> Somebody in his family. Anyway, so the idea being the connections matter here, and like the Bill Belichick coaching tree is is more white than the you know than the NFL playing pool, let's say. So that creates these problems as well. So anyway, so that's extended kind of explained. So if you want to look at how the hirings happen, look at the pool. And the big other finding that we had was that there were two other big findings we had was that one NFL teams tend not to NFL teams that did not to get hire a black coach the second time like a lot of the and yeah, people that, like that is a very common refrain yes. in the NBA among black coaches in particular that okay I might get the job but I get fired faster and I'm right. not getting a second and chance. that seems to be the case in the NFL as well as you don't get a second chance and we're not sure why that is and I can speculate a little bit but uh, Belichick is a second is a second chance coach and Andy Reid is on his second team, so you have so that's a big barrier there. Is that if you, if you fire, if you don't give people second chances, you're going to get better at the job. Inevitably, the second time you do it. And the second thing, and this one was one that was hard to write about, and it's like really challenging to think about, is that in Major League Baseball and in the NHL, the overwhelming number of uh, co- of uh, coaches or managers were former players. In the NBA and the NFL, that's not the case. And the difference in those sports, obviously, is there are way more white players in the MLB and particularly the NHL and simply fewer black players versus the NFL and the NBA are majority black leagues. So I do worry that you have some amount of, um, I don't want to say it's like purely racial discrimination, but you definitely have a, um, the white sports where being a player is a big credential in coaching and in the black sports, being a player seems to not be valued as a credential. And there may be reasons for those individual sports why that's the case, but my kind of worry as a black person who lives in America is that maybe there's an assumption that white guy X who's never played this sport is smarter or has some savviness about the sport as opposed to black person X who may just be athletically talented at the sport but doesn't understand it. That's kind of my worry. I can't prove that, obviously. And obviously the people who hire for sports teams are overwhelmingly white because owners of sports teams are overwhelmingly white. So I do worry. So that's kind of the other thing is like, in some ways, playing the sport should certainly not be a negative credential, and my guess is it should probably be a positive credential. 
Yeah, that that's uh, really interesting to think about. I think some, something that I would add on to that is if you look at just solely among, because a common refrain is, okay, this is a league that's 75% black. And so clearly there are not 75% black coaches and executives. I, I, from my focus, I tend to focus a little bit more on the executive standpoint. But I think if you look at the number of former players, if you say, okay, only former players, right? Like, cause let's say, let's say that outside of former players, you have just this group of people and any one of them is most capable of doing the job. Uh, and, you know, so in theory, the group that are not former players, if you're saying, okay, we're going to select from that bin, that should be more representative perhaps of the population as a whole. But if you're of the uh, former players who are selected, way higher percentage of white former players in executive and coaching jobs than are there are white players actually in the league. And so that to me is really damning to say that, you know, all right, we decided we're, if we're going with a former player here, oh, hey, and like, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but, you know, 50, 60% of the former players who are hired for these roles are white. I mean, that's completely insane to me. Yeah. And so, because because you can think about the coaching pool in two ways. Is it is it, should there be 13% black coaches or 75%? And that's a, that's a real question here, because I mean, in theory, yeah. you wouldn't coach a team. So 13% is the number of black people in the U.S. population. 75% is the NBA player. So I don't know the answer to that. Probably something in between. But what you said is, is problematic. And I do, I would say that a lot of coaching is kind of copycat hiring. Like my sense is like in every field, people see a success story and they're like, let's emulate that. And so the success story, I would argue in the NFL is Bill Belichick. So every right. team is trying to hire this sort of like, like I don't, I don't think you could have a black version of Bill Belichick, I guess, but a lot of his sort of, but, but I think people are looking for a certain person who's not overly friendly, who spends a lot of time in their office, who reads a lot of books about football, who talks about it in a very wonky way. Way. They're looking for a certain archetype that looks like a white guy, I think. And then um, in the NBA, I'm not sure. It's like I think they're. I think a lot of teams would like to hire a Doc Rivers type because he's done really well. But I think there yeah. is certainly the look for. Is there a Steve Kerr? Is there a person who can take the exact same team we had before and make it better just because they arrived? I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I do think the Mark Jackson, Steve Kerr comparison is not great for this dynamic because Steve Kerr took the same team essentially and made it a lot better. It makes Mark, it probably explains why Mark is not necessarily coveted in the profession. And also like it creates these odd dynamics where I think people are looking for a Steve Kerr and Steve is a former player. Um, he seems very racially progressive but he is a white guy so i think that is part of what's going on too here um yeah and i think we, we talked about this how uh you know when you're looking at former players i think that former players just in general a number one they uh, i mean i think we've seen a lot of guys who were not foreign players have a lot of success but i think part of that is because coaching and playing is not necessarily the same, the same thing right and so if you're starting in the organization in the video room at age 22 right out of college maybe you played in college or something like that or you, you get an internship and that's another problem by the way uh right. a lot of these sporting organizations have very low paying or unpaid internships which you know uh generally white people are more likely to have family money or be able to get some support so they can take a job like that whereas people of color maybe are less likely to be able to do that i think that's a, a big problem uh in getting people into the pipeline to begin with but uh, aside from that you're you know these players if they're going to retire at age 33 or 34 and then try to start their coaching and executive career you know they are really at maybe at a little bit of a disadvantage for people who've actually been doing that job already 
for 10 years they, they might be able to relate a little bit better to players because they played but they are also have disadvantages and i think also you know when i i've generally found that former players tend to be a little bit more reactionary a little bit less likely to try new things they kind of have these like tough guy mentalities that you know are maybe get, getting a little antiquated at this point and so one of the things that i focus on both in coaching and uh executives in particular is how can you get non playing minorities into the pipeline to begin with and i think that's and then not only that but give them a holistic um a holistic experience in a number of different disciplines you know because i I think you know teams really are like very much pigeonhole people at the beginning but to give them something where okay you we are really trying to groom this person to take on a larger role in this organization as time goes on and to really find qualified black minority candidates early on in the pipeline so that then you can't complain 10 years later when oh there are no qualified black candidates i think that's true i also i don't want to overdo the pipeline part in that so if i look at Dwayne casey who yeah coached at toronto did fairly well um so nick nurse replaced him nick nurse is probably a better coach Dwayne than Dwayne casey I don't know that I, I don't, I would still like to see Dwayne Casey coach a team that was not Detroit and to see if he could coach. <laughs> he, he, he might like to see yes. him coach a team that's and not so, Detroit So too. it's like he got a second chance kind of, but he's on a team yeah. that's like, you know, like, um, so I, so that's yeah. and he, he's thing. also making 7 million bucks a year. And so so I'm I, not, I can't cry. And for I'm not crying. Much, but, but in terms of like, do we yeah. know if he's a great coach or not and how good he is? I don't yeah. think I know the answer to that question yet because he was like Nick nurse. I think I can think and say is an outstanding coach. I think I can say that, but I don't know if Dwayne Casey is the seventh best coach, 17th or 27th. And I think we may never find out because he's now in a situation where I, my guess is in three to four years, he's not coaching anymore because that's a team that's not particularly good versus like, um, I feel like um, I'm trying to think of who got a chance. So Doc, you know, Doc showed in the second stop he was better than the first stop, for example. And you sort of want that to happen to more people where they get a chance with two teams that are pretty good. I mean, I understand why owners don't necessarily want to do that, but often I, I wonder if we're getting – our assumption is that – I think I think there's a lot of social science that show this in other fields too. Our assumption is that sort of uh, white people and men particularly have potential and we evaluate minorities and women based on what they've already done. And so I think that might play out in sports mm. as well. And I think that's kind of like – this was the social science as in other spheres. What I'm saying in other words is like I'm a little like so – so I work at 538, for example, and I mean, to get in my own career a little bit is like, I'm yeah. not sure I could build you a model of like how to like, I, I like Nate Silver builds models. That's not my expertise. I bring other skills to the table that I think are useful. And part of it, like particularly we're talking about like GM jobs, like I, I agree that in sports, there's a win and there's a loss, but I think that has a lot to do a lot of factors. And I do th- sometimes think if we brought now how we're thinking about what success looks like and who's good at the job, sometimes we sometimes we can expand the pool of what we're looking for as well yeah i I think that's fair and i think that also which is i i don't condone in the slightest i think a lot of people view hiring as i think it's particularly the case in college football for example view hiring a minority candidate as a risk 
yes. or it's outside the box and therefore you're not going to get as much leeway if you struggle early on than if you go with the conventional hire you kind of you just get a little bit more i think you know even from fans too you know there might be a little bit of that uh, particularly at the college level of where you know there's not going to be as much fan angst that you uh, hired someone who is quote-unquote non-traditional which i think can be a a, uh, a negative code at times so we we know in corporate america that black and so non-white and women ceos tend to get hired at companies when the company's having some major crisis or is failing already. ah yes so yes. it tells us that this then there's no risk then and so because it's like oh the company's already screwed anyway so we can try something different now but if they're doing fine they tend to hire whoever seems more traditional because it would be a hmm. criticized if they went in a bold direction i think that might be what's going on my i haven't studied this fully yet but my guess is often minority coaches are hired in situations that are pretty bad that they that no one can improve in the first place and that's yeah. probably why they're not doing well versus with the pipeline thing to come back it does matter so you know the miami dolphins football coach brian flores was the yeah. defensive coordinator at, for the new england patriots like look one thing if you want these sports to diversify is by itself like i think one problem is that um steve kerr has i think mike brown is one of his top coaches mike brown has had two chances i think i don't know that another team's gonna necessarily kill themselves to hire mike brown but in general like if steve kerr popovich bill belichick andy reed um we'll, we'll come back to andy reed in a second but in general like people who like that who are so well credentialed um teams want to hire their assistants so if you so there's a place where those three people the more diverse assistants they hire that will result that will change the head coaching pool right there the counter example yep. being the offensive coordinator of the kansas city chiefs right now his name is eric Bieniemy. he's a former player in the nfl he is the offensive coordinator for the Chiefs. He has been bypassed for a few offensive for head coaching jobs for the last couple of years now. And that's what's created some of this controversy in the NFL that he hasn't got a job. But my sense from that is that people assume that Andy Reid does the offensive stuff because I think he calls the plays and some and so on. And I think this is unfair because some of Andy, Andy Reid's assistants who were white have been hired for head coaching jobs anyway and been quite good at them. I think Doug Peterson, the coach for the um, Eagles, for example. So I think Eric should get a hiring job but i do think it'll be important for that to be established in fact i don't know if you know this uh, last example here is that bruce arians who is the coach in tampa bay now yeah. um has has um hired an uh, there's a black offense coordinator there there's a black defense coordinator there and there's a black special teams coach there i'm pretty sure he seems pretty interested in diversifying and building a building a pool of people he was interviewed about his coaches and he said i just hire the best coaches exactly the right message because if you're trying to diversify don't say i'm doing a diversity play because people hear yeah. it a certain way and he's also made clear that um the offense coordinator's name is byron leftwich he was a player in right. the nfl and bruce is an offensive expert but he has made clear that brian calls the plays not me and that again is an effort to make clear bruce is white but he's he's doing yeah. everything possible i would argue to make clear that these people are qualified because i think there is a you know like we can talk about affirmative action and diversity efforts and so on but in politics like I, my worry right now for kamala harris is that she's going to be picked as vice president and people are going to be like oh it's only because she's black and she's a woman she's a senator she ran for president 
president. She was attorney general of California. She has plenty of qualifications outside of that. But I think that at times we have the like to me in America, we have plenty of black qualified people who are not getting jobs. That's the problem is they're not getting jobs. Yeah. Not that we have too much affirmative action. But I think a lot of the perception is often that we have sort of quotas. And, and I, so I think you have to sort of deal with that. And let's be honest, like the sports owners are not necessarily the most woke people in the world. They're old 60 year olds <laughs> often who are white, who grew up in a certain era, who don't have a lot of black friends, who don't have a lot of black relationships. So I do think in that way, we have to sort of give them diversity they can understand, which is like, here's this guy named Brian who worked for Bill Belichick, who you think is a genius, who ran the defense for the New England Patriots, who just won the Super Bowl. Oh, by the way, he happens to be black. Like, that's an easy thing to do versus hard to get them to rethink how they hire and their norms in general. All right. Well, I I know you got to get going here. I wish we could continue this conversation on both of these topics uh, a lot longer. But uh, what's your uh, Twitter handle so people can follow you? It's uh, Perry Bacon Jr. All right. Uh, awesome to talk to you. Really enjoy your work. I'm going to put uh, links to the two articles that we talked about it as well in the show notes. And now let's bring in Danny for some news. All right. Danny is here now to talk about some news. Where we want to start is with the news that 16 of the 302 NBA players who were tested starting on Tuesday were positive for the coronavirus, uh, 5.3% of them as of Friday afternoon. According to Adam Silver, they and anyone else who had previously had it, none of them were seriously, although Rudy Gobert says his sense of smell hasn't entirely returned and he also has some weird symptoms every once in a while, but it's expected that he's going to be able to come back. Uh, so Silver also though, uh, and actually one more thing too, we haven't had reports of any further positive tests since that initial round of testing on Tuesday, which is definitely a good thing as, yes. as we record this uh, on Sunday, because that's when you're really, those players who tested positive should be able to get their quarantine period over with before actually getting to Orlando and starting training camps. So we don't know of anyone who's training camp potentially could be impacted yet and it's also good to see that as the season is restarting hopefully if these players are gonna and their families are gonna follow the restrictions that they're supposed to be where they're in market and basically under kind of a home lockdown type of scenario hopefully no other players will be getting infections between now and the time that everyone leaves for Orlando hopefully and if that is in fact the case they should be in very good position for this restart and that 16 out of 302 that's kind of about where i would have expected it to be i would say maybe slightly higher so but uh apparently everyone who tested positive is doing well so far which is the important thing yeah and i believe that was broadly in line with the nhl testing that happened somewhat recently as well so i think that's that's reasonable um some some responses and words from adam silver and i thought that you know he's gotten a lot of criticism especially because of the the recent surge specifically in orange county florida which is which is where orlando is and I, I, the the gist that I was getting from his response there, like talks about you know the planning processes and the conclusion that they can't outrun the virus. There's a little bit there. It's like you could just not play. But the idea behind that is that you that in Orlando, because of the Disney complex, you could create a more permeable or a less permeable bubble, and that theoretically that will do the work and protect them from the from the surroundings. And that is a part of the idea. There there are things we've discussed before that they could do to make the bubble a little bit stronger and they may choose to to work on some of that like the the uh 
protocols with Disney employees and everything else. But I think that's really what he was getting at is that if they design the system right, where it is won't matter as much in terms of potentially infecting the players. Yeah. And he was asked if they would still choose Orlando given rising cases there uh, and also in Florida. And he noted that we were going to try and return in some form or fashion. And that's just what we're doing and I, and I would echo that to some degree where it's just like hey this is going to be where the virus is in this country for probably the next six months or so and if not a year or more and given that reality is all economic activity going to stop or are we going to have to try and find a way to live with this reduce risk but still continue this on and the players have agreed to do this in theory they have informed consent the union has been a huge part of the planning process here they have the ability to opt out if they don't want to do it and there is still a chance certainly that this could go horribly wrong but i mean this is a society-wide failure that we're dealing with and we have to find a way to go on with our lives in some fashion and i think you know this is a different situation than it was back in march where continuing to play would be completely irresponsible uh Adam Silver has gotten a lot of crap for saying, well, it's about the data, not the date. And now cases are riding in Flo- rising in Florida. So how could it be about the data? And he might still want to have that statement back, but the data doesn't only include case counts. It also includes our evolving understanding of the virus. Back in March, we thought that a lot of this was being driven by fomite transmission and don't touch your face and surfaces. And if that were the case, to where, hey, you really can't even be around anywhere else where, you know, for example, if you had someone clean your hotel room and they were infected and they left some virus on a surface, if that were like a real common way of transmission, then it might not be possible to do this. And I think people might say, well, hey, you know, you're an NBA writer. Of course, you think they should be doing that. I was very skeptical that they'd be able to do it back when we thought that that was the case. But now as the science has evolved, that is not a major driver of transmission. Not impossible, but not a major driver. And so it's all about close contact. And I think given that reality, it's made this much easier. Like that is the evolving science of the virus in addition to just how many cases you have in a certain jurisdiction are is a big part of the data as well that no one talks about and the other part of the data is just the ability of to test players frequently you know like the the capacity the capacity of testing and this wouldn't be possible without the the regime that they're looking to put in place and yeah i'd like it if they were doing a little bit more rigid testing of the people who could potentially be around it but as you mentioned surfaces that they can they can limit the direct access that a lot of those people have to to the people who are theoretically inside the bubble and and, um, and, and quick, quickly on testing too, uh, I think it was Dan Warke who had this. I'm not sure whether this was part of the presser, but uh, he said that at least at the beginning, everyone is going to be tested every day, which I also think is especially at that beginning portion where you have people coming in and there isn't quite as long of a quarantine period once arriving as I might like to see that everyday testing is going to be extremely important. They may modify that as time goes on, but it's good to hear because that had not been in the protocol of exactly how often they're going to be testing. So that report, I, I think it makes me feel better about things uh at least in the beginning uh silver also said that they are continuing to work with disney on the testing of at least a subset of disney employees that could potentially be in the same room as the players and and other people who are tested daily and the thing that i'm a little bit i i think i understand it but the thing that's a little bit queasy for me is that they don't have a standard for what would be necessary to stop play like they have the, they're working closely with the player association which they would have to with disney and public health officials for where the line should be and he 
did say, Silver did say that key players will be treated the same as uh, like an all-star or a journeyman in terms of the well, process. Yeah. But that well, doesn't Well, in mean terms of the process, they have to go through. They have to go through. But not saying. necessarily the process of whether games are going to continue. Right. Yeah. No, that that's a, a great point. And I mean, if I were in their situation, no, I would not want to have uh, a strict protocol for that either you don't know when that is in the process you don't know how these people got infected you don't know you know it i mean it's really a sliding scale on a bunch of factors is it just one team has it spread among a bunch of teams how many contacts have those people who are infected reasonably had how long could they have potentially been infectious they're so and of course who those players are as well and so i mean if in some scenario, if let's say the 12th man on every single team, but nobody else got infected, are you going to stop? I mean, it probably doesn't make sense to stop. And that, now, I mean, obviously that's a magical scenario I'm talking about here. I realize that transmission isn't going to work in that way and all that, but it just, it, there, I, I do think that it does not make sense to just come up with all or nothing rules right now. And yeah, there's certainly a concern that they are, that these decisions will be driven by something other than science. But that's that's what politicians have to do all the time. It's not like, if, as you mentioned, if it's about keeping everyone absolutely safe, nobody would ever leave their house with with the coronavirus. And, and there's been a decision made that some risk is tolerable to try and continue this. And there is no specific handbook that I think you can come up with where if you say, all right, exactly six players test positive, we're stopping now. That I don't think it makes sense to... Uh, come up with that ahead of time and then potentially if what if you're in that situation and it's six phoenix suns and they're leaving the next day and they haven't had contact with anyone and so now it's like really we're going to stop this because the team that's now leaving and they haven't had contact with they, they haven't played a game in a couple of days and the team that they're also playing is leaving as well and they haven't had contact with anyone other than the suns like you know there's just too many variables to come up with a strict protocol right now i agree and the other group actually before we get to that let's talk about the silver also included in the in those same comments the that they're going to try to kind of change and improve the experience you know the never before seen camera angles is getting a little bit of attention which is fine and audio and personalized alternative screen streams we'll see how all that goes and for me really it's like hey if you want to use it to try new things especially considering there will not be fans there more power to you we'd love for there to be increased access to alternate audio streams that would be something that you and i are particularly invested in but i, I support the league by the way it. yeah uh uh the nba cast will be returning on uh opening night uh the 30th i think we'll definitely do lakers clippers and maybe we'll even do some of uh it's gonna it'll, it'll be kind of sad to not do the first game so i don't maybe we'll even try and do both of them i'll love to see for uh nba cast but yeah july 30th we will be doing it uh i hope you'll you will join us for that um yeah anything else on that or should we should we move on oh we can move on to the to the delete eight and one big challenge there and and this isn't a surprise is that trying to do some sort of a mini camp for those teams there are certain players and coaches that it's it's a very good thing for them to do that but the knicks are a great example here they have so many pending free agents but that- well quickly to talk about what uh there's some talk of that they want to actually like play some televised games and bring all these teams together uh as opposed to just having some kind of a camp at all and so uh yeah if you're going to play televised games with a bunch of players after the season is over that's where you, you run into these issues but please continue i just yes. want to make sure that that we had sure. a, a framework for what we're talking about no that that's good and yeah and so and that brings different risks of you know exposure and travel and everything else too and, and 
as I was getting to, there are a lot of pending free agents, especially in the Knicks, but on a lot of these teams. And there is, you know, if, if Davis Bertans justifiably is not playing in the actual bu- seeding games, bubble games, because he because of the potential of risking yourself, doing it for nothing burger games for teams that are already out is an even more stark choice for some of these players. And I, I would fully support all of them not doing it. So it might be hard to reconcile some of that. And, and But I, I do think I'm sympathetic to the idea that they will go in all likelihood, those players are going to go more than six months without real NBA competition, and that will be a challenge. And also remember that the what looks like a tight timeline on the backside of this will make it hard for those teams to like get extended training camps because they aren't going to know their rosters too far ahead of time. Yeah, that that's a good point there. Uh, worth noting that Michelle Roberts said if they're going to do this, they need to have the same safety as in Orlando, and it's really going to cost the league a lot of money. It sounds like the, the figure that's been bandied about is $100 million just in terms of the hotels and all the testing and the security and renting the space and whatnot. So it wouldn't cost that much for this because it wouldn't take as long and it wouldn't be as many teams. But do they really want to spend the money on that when who knows what the televised product is going to be? Now, your other problem, though, you might say is, hey, given the number of cases, is there any way to do this without just kind of having a bubble? Teams aren't, each team is not going to have to create its own bubble. You can get some economies of scale with that by bringing everyone together. But I mean, we really could be at a point where in home markets, if players are just doing whatever they're doing, you can't, they can't really have close contact with each other because they haven't gone through this process of, you know, really where you've got testing taking place over a period of over four weeks before players uh, or three weeks really before players can have close contact among each other on their own teams and then four weeks if not more before there's close contact with players on other teams and so that's uh it may just be too difficult but of course all of this casts a pal on the 21 or the 2021 season when presumably that's not going to take place in a bubble it's players have to be in their home markets along the lines of what baseball and football are trying to do and i do have major concerns about the ability to keep players coronavirus free if they're just doing what they would normally be doing in their home markets and so so that's i mean we'll cross that bridge when we come to it but i i'm i'll tell you what i'm much more optimistic about orlando than the 2021 season and part of the same issues you're going to have with the 2021 season are going to rear their heads with uh, this mini camp situation for the the delete eight she also mentioned that it looks like rosters are going to be submitted by teams on on wednesday which is or sorry on july 1st is that wednesday um on- um that is no i think that's Yes, it is. Wednesday, July 1st. Ah, good. Yes. Yes. June has 30 days in it. Um, Yeah. So, but initially that was supposed to be June 24th, but with July 1st, when teams need to send in their rosters, they can make moves until then. Although in one case, uh, Wilson Chandler, who just decided he's not going to play, that actually cost the Nets Theo Pinson because they moved on from Pinson so they could sign Tyler Johnson. But if Chandler had just said he wasn't going to play earlier, then they could have signed Johnson's replacement player and, and kept Theo Pinson. Uh, and that's also signing uh, Justin Anderson, by the way. Um, but we'll get to a few more of these transactions momentarily. Should we uh, just talk about like the schedule and the seating chances now that that is finally out? Yeah, we can do that. There's uh, some some good work that's already been done by our friend Kevin Pelton and by Jacob Goldstein about where this, where this might be going. Um, I believe it's yeah, it's Pelton's projections that have Memphis, despite having a, a harder schedule, having a 66% chance of ending the seeding games in the eight seed and then a 20, uh, 20% chance of being in the nine. The team that has the best chance of 
taking over the eighth spot, theoretically for a playing game, is the New Orleans Pelicans. Pelton gives them an 18% chance of getting there and a 35.6% chance of being the nine and thus presumably being in the playing game. Yeah, so definitely the overwhelmingly likely outcome here appears to be Memphis versus New Orleans in some form of fashion in the play. And obviously getting to eighth is a huge advantage there and memphis in 86.4 percent of all simulations that pelton did makes either the eighth or ninth seed new orleans is second there the only other team obviously over 50 percent new orleans is looking at uh, about 54 percent chance of being either the eighth or the ninth seed and then you've got portland and sacramento with the basically around 20 percent chances after that and then san antonio and phoenix with uh a lot less than that Right. And naturally, there are always people who have conspiracy theories about like how the Pelicans have such an easy schedule. But remember, if they had actually played the regular season, the Pelicans would have had an even easier schedule because they lost the games they were going to play against the Delete Eight. So it is more favorable for them than other teams, but less favorable for them than it would have been had the season continued. And so, you know, that's just the way it's going to go when you're just putting putting together these eight game slates. And yeah, the, the other thing to note, too, is uh, New Orleans with that easy schedule has a ton of games against these other teams vying for eighth and ninth in the West. And so uh, there could be more variability here if those teams beat New Orleans they because they are not only boosting their own chances, but hurting New Orleans at well, the same time. The other part of it is we will see how the best teams, you know, the ones that the model the models are treating as really tough games, once they have things pretty well settled, there might be, I mean, might not be the last game, but you might see them be a little bit more judicious with a couple guys at certain moments in time. And so just like I've, I've complained about incessantly at the end of regular seasons and full regular seasons, there will be some specific advantages in, in games. We just can't really predict what those will be. Yeah, a huge one that jumped out to me is Memphis's last game is against the Bucks. And the Bucks are going to get the number one seed. The Bucks might play like Giannis and company just a little bit to get them in shape, but they will not be trying to win that game. They won't care. And unless they decide, well, hey, uh, we would rather beat Memphis, boost to say New Orleans, because we think New Orleans will give our potential finals opponent, the Lakers, a much better series than Memphis would. So maybe that would be an impetus for them to try a little bit. Uh, well, I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of just very teams able to have pretty direct effects uh, on what other teams' opponents are going to be. Right. And the other factor that might be affecting the Bucks' decision-making is with especially Bertans not playing for the Wizards, it's looking less likely that there's going to be a play-in game in, in the Eastern Conference just because Pelton's projections only have the Wizards um, winning two of the eight games on average. So that's going to make it hard for them to actually make up the ground. And it is more like his projections have it more likely that the Magic would be involved in it as the eight, but that the Wizards are basically always coming in as the nine, if they even make it. And there's not that much of a chance of play in game. Yeah. And, f- and furthermore, the Wizards are five and a half games behind. Remember, you got to get within four to trigger the play in. And so the Wizards need to be two games better over the course of this than uh whoever the eighth seed is going to be to uh to get in there and so uh that does seem unlikely especially with no bertans they are easily considered the worst team in pelton simulations and so i mean if they're only it'd be it's i mean you think the whiz at least have to win five of their eight games you would think they even have a shot there i mean because because if they don't do that then you're counting on like the nets only winning two or something like that, which is impossible because this is i mean it's gonna be very interesting to see what the records look like when you just take the eight worst teams in the league out of there mm-hmm. um a couple other notes here for the eight nine remember of course that 
for that play-in the eighth seed only has to win once and the ninth seed has to win twice to get in so uh that's just worth remembering in this new format sorry if that's uh, too repetitious and new orleans has by far the easiest schedule of any team as they did in what was going to be the normal regular season and the blazers are in theory tied with the kings but they have played a couple more games and so therefore have a one thousandth of a point better winning percentage and so any tie between the blazers and kings the blazers would win that let's talk a little bit about just the chances of the higher seeds getting flipped around a a little bit let's start in the west yeah so in in the west pelton's model has it basically the lakers only have a 0.4 percent of a chance of losing the one seed they would go to the two and the clippers would go to the one the clippers have an 87 percent chance of staying at the two and about a 10 percent chance of dropping to the three it would mostly be denver that does it theoretically another team could make a run but denver is the closest has the best shot denver's yeah clippers have have one of the easier schedules as well by the way they do and they have i believe it's a one and a half game lead on denver at the moment uh, and uh they're they're better uh in theory at least as of now who knows maybe everything will completely change when we get in this bubble yeah and and there is a there is a you know kind of like a, a smaller version of what we see at the bottom of the west where it only takes one team getting really hot but the clippers have a larger margin and the clippers are better comparatively to their peers than than the grizzlies are so that's why it's a different conversation a uh, pelton's model gives denver a 51 percent chance of ending up in the three they could go as high as the two they could drop as low as probably the six they could theoretically drop below dallas and then his model projects utah to be the four houston to be the five okc to be the six dallas to be the seven and then of course memphis to be the eight so and noteworthy there is once you get below denver in the third third seed none of the four through seven teams has greater than a 50 percent chance of landing in any particular spot according to his simulations uh and dallas has a pretty decent chance of moving up utah we don't know how the loss of bogdanovich is going to affect things for them but yeah i mean and houston for example has basically about a equal chance of being anywhere from four through seven um what about the east the east is a little bit more stable bucks have a 100 percent chance of finishing first toronto 87 percent chance of finishing second the team that would jump them is the celtics they have about a 13 percent chance of doing that they have a slight chance to drop into four Miami has a tough schedule, but also has an advantage right now in terms of record. So Pelton's model gives them a, about a 71% chance of holding as the four seed. And then the battle then would be for who faces Miami in the first round. He has Philly as the favorite. They have a 43% chance of finishing as the five seed compared to Indiana's 39% chance of finishing there. And then Brooklyn over Orlando for the seven, 56% to 40 to 45%. And then Orlando is the eight due to what we mentioned before. Yeah. And almost no chance that Miami falls to six with these simulations. So five and six is probably going to be either Philly or Indy. And I got a question for you, Danny. Would you rather be the five seed or the six seed if you were Philly? And to play that out, I mean, it's uh, five seed. You probably get Miami in the first round and then you get Milwaukee in the second round. Or would you rather be six? You get probably Boston in the first round, but then you get Toronto in the second round, likely instead of Milwaukee. 
If the goal is to make the NBA Finals, I would actually, pro- I guess I would probably rather be the six because then there's, you know, you get another chance for the Bucks to lose. But winning a round could be very important for them, and winning a round is easier against Miami than it is against Boston. So I would take the five. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if you're Brett Brown and there's pressure to make it to at least the conference finals to keep your job, I'd probably rather be the six personally, especially because home court advantage doesn't really matter either way sure um so yeah i i think i probably prefer to be and it just it changes the i mean we saw this with houston last year we saw this with portland last year i mean i think it's ridiculous we've remarked on this a billion times but just in terms of the zeitgeist in your home market the under the feeling about the organization overall just making it to that conference finals no matter how you did it is so much more important than losing in the second round so yeah i think definitely uh i would rather be the sixth seed if if i were philly i just think it's so risky because if they get knocked out in the first round like by boston then i think that that puts ownership less willing to spend and puts more people on the hot seat so it really is about how much risk you're willing to take also of note is the battle in between brooklyn and orlando for being seventh rather than eighth not only are you not subjected to a potential play-in game if you get to seventh, but you get to play Toronto instead of Milwaukee. And I don't think those, either Brooklyn or Orlando, has much of a chance against Toronto, but they got no chance against Milwaukee. Let's hit uh, some news here real quickly before we go. We already mentioned the Nets losing Theo Pinson to sign Tyler Johnson but and signing Justin Anderson, but they also, uh, Nick, Nick Claxton, their rookie second-round pick, uh, underwent arthroscopic labor and repair surgery on his left shoulder, and so he will not go to Orlando. They expect him to make a full recovery for training camp next season. Jokic, Nikola Jokic, is feeling fine and showing no symptoms, according to Mike Singer of the Denver Post, but there is not yeah. a clear timeline for when the Nuggets expect him back in market, though they expect that he will be with them when they leave for Orlando on July 7th. Yeah, he, of course, uh, had tested positive for coronavirus in Serbia. The Pistons have signed Justin Patton, who we still have basically like never seen play. Uh, he's, I think they're trying to reprise their success with Christian Wood. And Patton actually has some similarities with it, some natural shooting touch, length, shot blocking ability. So maybe the Pistons can try to develop him well, and, as and, well. And as your podcast partner, John Hollinger, mentioned, it is entirely possible that Troy Weaver was a big part of the reason why Justin Patton ended up in Oklahoma City. He leaves for Detroit. Justin Patton's there too. So it seems like a parallel. Um, Isaiah Hartenstein, interestingly, so he was waived to clear a roster spot for the Rockets in the bubble. And despite you know having a minimum contract for next year he went completely unclaimed through the waiver process yeah and i think part of that reason might be if he wants to sign elsewhere that teams might want to get him on a longer minimum contract (laughs) instead uh but he clearly did not fit in houston's plans despite the fact that he had put up some numbers in the g league and a few points and rebounds numbers uh, when he did get to play but still a defensive liability struggles uh, moving his feet particularly well i think it, it makes more sense for another team to take a look at him but for houston it made no sense really to keep him around they have a, a lot of these kind of dead roster spots uh, that they are now trying to fill uh, we mentioned they also signed david nuava but he's not going to play so uh Ty- tyson chandler must be like marty mcfly seeing all the other centers in the picture disappear <laughs> And speaking of centers, this one now not disappearing. Uh, Joakim Noah is on the Clippers for the bubble. He is guaranteed through this season and then has a non-guarantee for the 2020-21 season. Uh, And then in Minnesota, the intrepid reporting of the Athletics, John Krasinski, a frequent guest on the pod, uh, notes that uh, Jay Johnson is uh, fully expected to exercise his $16 million player option. 
for the 2021 season. And in what is probably the record for most times Theo Pinson has ever been mentioned in an episode of this podcast, especially considering it just regarded a waiver. We, we mentioned that the Nets waived him. I'm not sure if we mentioned that the Knicks picked him up and how the Knicks did that was they uh, they waived Alonzo Trier. And I, I spilled some digital ink going back to last year when the Knicks signed Trier to this contract. And one of the consequences there was that by having him on a richer deal for the 2019-20 season, that meant that he had a larger qualifying offer as a as a free agent and that combined with you know not having the most inspiring of seasons might have ended up leading to his ouster on the Knicks at this point now fair to note that Trier had got almost no chance to play true this year and certainly no chance to play in a, a situation that would have been good for him. the Knicks just had so many ball dominant creators and he's shown some flashes for the ability to create shots doesn't do anything else but I didn't think that the amount that they had signed him to was insane. But I think part of why they grabbed Pinson, number one, is the regime change. But number two, his qualifying offers would be big enough that they weren't going to give him that. And uh, they may be trying to use cap space. That qualifying offer would have taken up cap space. And also, I think the moment it arrived in my inbox, I probably would have accepted it if I were true. So he was going to be an unrestricted free agent at the end of this anyway. I'm sure that given especially if the Knicks draft another guard, given where they are, Trier just does not fit into their plans. And so he might be better off in a place where they need more shot creation. I think a team like Orlando actually would be wise to take a look at him uh, if he does clear, wa- clear waivers in particular. It's also good of the Knicks to waive him at a point where he could potentially catch on. He won't be playoff eligible this year, but uh, he could at least, uh, and same thing with Hartenstein too, he could at least be uh get into a team system and hopefully play for them next year rather than having to just wait till the summer and then two more signings here quickly jerry and grant uh will sign with the washington wizards ryan brokoff will sign with the 76ers and since we've reached the ryan brokoff portion of the podcast it is probably time to end. Uh, anything you want to talk about before we go? Yeah, I had a, a fun recording with Sam Vecini over, I think that was on Thursday or Friday for Real GM Radio. We talked about his rookie scale ranking series and about LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards, a bunch of other stuff. So you can do that. And the the collaborative pieces for The Athletic with, that I'm writing with Seth Partnow and Dave Dufour and, and Sam Vecini, those are going to keep rolling. I think the Hawks is coming out pretty soon. And then on my own off-season preview series I'm doing, I think it's going to be about two a week for the delete eight until we get to actual games and then they will start rolling in as soon as teams get knocked out too and that's gonna happen pretty soon all right no hollinger and duncan this week that'll be back next week and danny and i will be back probably either wednesday or thursday night we'll talk to you all then